0: What,
1: right. what in it? Right. Just Boom, episode 95 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Gowl out. It's me, Terry Flower. It's me, C.O.B. And this week we're doing, boy, go left to right, boys, yeah? <laughs> To Larry's podcast, it's Timmy Long and James Leonard. What's happening, boys? How's happening? things? Thanks for the invitation. Nice little gaff you got here. It's yeah. some little chat-up, isn't it, that we yeah, have? Yeah, yeah. What, well, Robin, a living? Hard <laughs> <laughs> me, James. We camped the kitchen table, staring into this. All the lights and cameras, and all that. There'll
2: be wax white sitting here a little bit. You no, know, but you know, it's great to have the tech support because you're, you're focus then on the content and facilitating the conversation. You're not worrying about, you know, it, it did somebody press record? It? Is this sound good and that? You know, but that's where we started out, like, isn't it? Big time, yeah, yeah.
1: And you were only saying you always had a tech issue there recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A we say no
2: more.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. A bad one, is well. yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, But uh, these things happen. It's all let's the just, learning. Course. Let's just
0: say it's resolved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> they got a shot they it, but fucking hell, yeah. Look, like I was saying it's a learning is <laughs> not the start, boys. And when you're doing these things by yourself, like I remember when we was down in the kitchen, like ah, Jen Nielsen, just saying, oh, if we say this, we didn't even really know how to cut or nothing. Mm. So we do a whole podcast, and I'd be like one
3: take, yeah, and one whole take, start yeah. to finish, pause, or oh, press play and then pause when
2: now yeah. finish. That That's all weird. we do to, the, to this day. Yeah. We only we start and we finish and we cut the top and the tail of the pod, but the whole thing goes out as it's recorded. But you yeah. know what was important for us, John, you know When I was start, when we were starting out the podcast, blind by put out a podcast and the philosophy of podcasting which was brilliantly timed because we were t- I was up in my head about I need this equipment and I need this software and Adobe Creative Cloud and Zoom H8 recorders, mics and cameras and all. I'm blind by proto-podcast and he says, listen, he says, the most important thing is the content, 100%. not the tech. And people don't care about what latest tech you have. If the content is good, that's what the people want so focus on the content and the rest to look after yourself over time and I thought that was good advice then
1: You know, 100% and it's a prime example of us if you look, listen back to our first few episodes oh my god look when I listen back to it now I go how do people listen I know but it's it's how we started off like we started off with Calvin's song. we just put it on the kitchen table and we were like right start yeah. and then we took
3: Echo it in the background you can hear sirens dogs oh, yeah everything <laughs> <cooking> <laughs> and all. What have
2: you? but the content was good it must have been cause yeah. I'm fucking people to come back and now like You could get like a a, a 250 euro basic 720p camera, right? From Argos, you could get a five grand 4K camera. The people watching don't give a shit. and they probably won't even notice. It's just when you're in this zone, you you know these little differences. But the general population just want good content, yeah, you know, something that they can relate to,
0: and or maybe something that's going on for them in their own lives as well. Mm. And they might need some guidance around, you know. Mm. So that's 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 what most people want is to hear people's stories around how they got over this or got over that or what's going on in their lives. And sometimes this might just be a bit of crack. Yeah. Like we're having here today, you know. Exactly, yeah. we're
3: grateful for the lads here. You Once we leave here, that's it, we know the podcast is going out. They'll yeah. Spruce her up or do whatever they have to do, you know what I mean, yeah. and as well. What we couldn't do when we were in the kitchen there, we couldn't take a toilet break. So yeah. we Dad's <laughs> gone with the toilet, and now boom!
2: Yeah, you were very confident with your toilet breaks a while ago. You
3: yeah. <laughs> may as well tell everybody where yeah. we are, lads, and how we end up getting yeah. us up here, and what has yous up in Dublin? So we were out uh, giving a talk f- today for the Irish. Do you
0: want to fill those well, in? We were all giving a talk for the Irish Probation Services. It was just around how mental health podcasts help people in their daily lives, basically, yeah. and how how it influences them and and, and, and um, the importance of mental health podcasts, particularly mental health podcasts that break the language down, like ours, like yours, like Blind Boys. We're breaking the language down for the people the, that need it the most. And that's people who are coming from a- areas of drug addiction, poverty, where they may, may not be educated. But the language we speak in then is their language. Mm. We're not using academic language, we're using language that everybody can understand because it's, it's torn down in the gym.
2: Yeah, and in the event earlier on, it was uh, put on by the Irish Probation Service, and there was mm-hmm. a panel discussion of which there was talking bollocks, the two Narries, Dr. Sharon Lambert and Senator Lynn And because uh, everybody on that panel has done some sort of a podcast on criminal justice, mental health, addiction, recovery. So that was the context of where we were today and it went really well today, boys, isn't it? I was
3: yeah. privileged to be there, lads. honestly, it was an honour mm-hmm. to be there. But uh, the lads are giving me a bit of stick because they asked everybody a question and before the question came to us, I knew we were next. So I was like, I better run the toilet before they ask. But it was... Very abrupt in front of everybody, and when I came back. Lim was talking, and then Terence group went to the toilet, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I was getting ready to go. Then the dubs are very weak bladders, apparently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but well, uh, it was a good chat, it was a very progressive talk, wasn't it? Boys, like, and like all of us said in there, we're not actually mental health podcasts, mm-hmm. but mental health just seems to pop up in every podcast. Yeah.
0: Do you know, do you know, what I do you know what I find one of the biggest things to take away from today is this that the probation services are actually looking at areas like this as a benefit. Mm. You know, there's massive change in the criminal justice system in this country at the moment, Mm. whether people know it or not. They're starting to look at people within the prison system and look at them as human beings who may, not just criminals who are there, but human beings who have a past. They're looking more into their past and looking who they are and why they behave in certain ways and why they do certain things other than just saying nah nah he's the fellow who done that or whatever mm. like, stay away you know mm. that's but
1: all changing it's exactly what we were saying earlier life experience is worth more than anything boys and if you want to talk about the criminal justice system you always tell boys a prime example like you always have lived that life and you always have come through to the other side of it. and now look at you very successful in the podcast world and he's doing big big things so who else would you want in that seat to give that talk than people who've lived it you know what I mean instead of somebody who's high up and hasn't lived it, let's just say that, and hasn't lived it, and they're sitting you down telling you how this happens and how that happens. No, let's get people in who've lived that life, and you're out the other side of it. It's not like as if you're still involved in crime or drugs or anything like that, you're out mm-hmm. the other side now. So, you was a prime example for
2: that, you know, that yeah. type of way. And, you know, like like yourselves, you know we're from an area where there'd be a lot of like uh, social deprivation, poverty, yeah. and stuff like that. So that's where we're from, in the north side of Cork City. And people from the north side of Cork City are known as Norries. So I heard one he said a while ago that uh, when he named the podcast, he thought that maybe he might be popular amongst where he lived, you know. But that was a bit like us. We, might, we thought we might be popular, but we ha- keep having to explain to people outside of Cork what a Norrie is, you know what I mean? Yeah. But this thing just screwed legs, you know. But uh, do you know why? It's like that people want something like uh, non traditional media. You know, I'm not yeah. going to say mainstream media because that has kind of right wing kind yeah. of You know, but like there's a lot of stuff on RT, and it would be like uh, cyclical. So you'll have like uh, Nathan Carter will be on singing two or three times a year, and you know, and and that's fine. But there's no people, no representation from our communities. And I think when we started putting ourselves on camera and talking, people, like, you know, what they're speaking, and I don't know anybody else with my accent that speaks like that. And then we, um, once you have a platform, then you can give other people the opportunity to share their story that they may never get the opportunity to share their story. And people with background like ours and from areas like ours, they have a lot to offer and and what what we can do with podcasts because it's an independent medium and, you know, anybody can start one up and that's the beauty of it. Just start one up, get your friend on and if they have a story to tell, let them tell it, you know, so it's just great to be able to represent your area, you know.
0: And you know what's very important as well? That we need more of these podcasts. Because we need we need more of the the, the spoken more of the people that are underground, you know, the working class people, people that are caught up in addiction and recovery, or, are that are, uh, and in recovery. We need more people voicing you know, more people listening, you know. And what's going to happen then from that is we'll have we'll start breaking stigmas. Yeah. People will be kinder to each other because they 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 know, understand that. Those that are maybe homeless or those that are begging on the street, you know, they're human beings at the other day, you know. And it's not that they made a choice to, to go on the streets or anything. Sometimes your situations, like, you've no control over them, you know. Like, I know I didn't have the awareness to get away from the, the life that I lived before until something really... Major happened in my life, and and it pushed me into that direction where I was losing everything—my my losing my children, my wife. I know where to go, you know. I, and I, I had to start somewhere, so I went to a doctor to get help. You know, it's more stories like that we need to hear because that's how we're going to change people's perception of of people from from areas of 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 poverty and drug addiction and crime. And that's where we need to lean to. Mm. Definitely, Timmy, and it's, we say all the time, if our areas are nurtured
1: correctly, like, you'll see some serious talent showing through in all aspects. Mm. It's not just in sport where funding is completely underfunded as well, mm. but it's, like, in podcasting and everything, like, we stories to People tell. Arts,
3: like, we've some big actors as well. Like, we were mm. having a chat about Barry Keoghan outside, and mm. he was talking about a film that he was in, and I was saying, like, oh, I know him, like, he, he grew up where I grew yeah. up and. He's coming from an underfunded area, you know what I mean?
0: Look look at where you're from, okay, lads, both of you. And James, both of us too. Look at where we're from, right? And look at the talented young footballers that came through the area, right? I mean talented. And they never made it because drink yeah. and drugs. 100%. And me and James, you know, a handful, Do you know, a dozen of them, they straight off the top of my head here. Mm. You know, They need
2: role models it's like, even like us. Even outside of the drinking drugs, there might be a single mother there, right? There might be three or four kids. Mm-hmm. She might not have the time to bring him to train and to go to the matches. It's very easy then for him to get lost when the motivation goes Sadly down. But. And we all know people from your local area that had huge potential, but they ended up in addiction or mental health or long term unemployed because the mother, for whatever reason, or the father, wasn't able to take them along. But Kelly Harrington is from your area
1: Exactly, and look what she's doing, like in a completely underfunded boxing club. Like imagine if that was funded correctly, how many more Kelly Harringtons would we have? Yeah. And it's the same thing of like the role models where we're from boys, like growing up I know when I was growing up, the role models to me were the youngers that were in the fresh clothes and yeah. the nice watches and they were the own bits here and there. Mm-hmm. And I used to look at the walking man and think, why would I go and break mm-hmm. me back? Yeah. Every day or eight to ten hours when I can stand there and do that. And that that's that's the vision. So people, I don't think when you're not from the area, I think it's hard to understand how you get caught up. They're like, how do you get caught up and you end up in prison and end up strung out on drugs? And you're like, well, if you're growing yeah. up and you're seeing that every day, like we spoke about earlier on, monkey see monkey do boys. Yeah. And when you're looking at this, I oh, always aspired to take the wrong road because we don't really fully understand as we're growing up the pros and cons mm. to that life. Like the pros to the working life is you get the out in an honest way, it's come back feed your family, and you don't have to look over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that when we're younger. We see the lads in the nice clothes and the nice watches and think, handy few quid, mm-hmm. you don't have to move off the block, you stay in the flats, yeah. and, and you make money.
0: But but, but there's there's a, there's a, if if what you're saying there's true, okay? But so many young fellas like myself, yourselves. Mm, Slip through the cracks because 100%. school isn't the place for us, okay? Yeah? Mm. And education, we can like a lot of us slip through the cracks because we 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 weren't able to get an education because we'd learning differences or ADHD, and you couldn't sit in the classroom and focus, you know. So what happens then is if you don't get that in assess assessment right by the school, in, uh, by an educational psychologist to pick out these things and get you the education and these teachers, so these teachers can understand you as a, as a person and your education level and what your ability is, and you don't get the education, what are you going to do? You're going to go out and you're going to hang around the streets and that's it. But what what if the education system is like this, okay? What if every child, right, if the teachers were were... were we're educated around dyslexia, dyspraxia, all these different learning differences, okay? And they were able to say, right, they had somebody in the school then that they go to, this child needs an assessment from an EP, an educational psychologist, okay? That child then gets the assessment done, okay? The report comes back. The school can meet that child's needs. What happens? That child doesn't slip through the cracks. No, the child that did. child's not religion? left at the back of the classroom. That's where we need to focus, lads. Exactly, Timmy. You know, that's That's, where it needs to be focused. We need to start in the schools. Now, that child, same child, might have a lot of difficult situations going on at home. Mm. Okay, a lot of them, like I did myself. Okay, I wasn't just dyslexic. I had really, really a lot of stuff going on at home. But you can also introduce something else, like counselling, kind of, uh, maybe... A counselling service where there's a connection then. Because schools have a massive, massive role in children's lives growing up. You know, that's where it developed. You know, and we go on... I think we need to start here. Mm. But even yes. see,
1: starting this is now where we're starting when we're talking about doing counselling on platforms like this. Yeah. Because I think many years ago, like there would have been a stigma around talking to someone. Like you think if somebody went to counselling, that's there's, oh, there's something wrong with them. Yeah. When nowadays we're openly saying counselling is the best thing for you, talking to somebody, doing this type of thing and doing that type of thing. So, I think once we're on here and we're trying to spread a good word and mm. uh, like saying that it's okay to go and do these things. Well, then that's that's a good start. But I think you're right education system needs to be changed and it's not going to save every kid and some will slip through the cracks but like it's about that chance. That's
3: about teachers as well like teachers need to realise the influence they actually have over somebody like if you show them that bit of encouragement and that bit of belief and that instilled self-confidence then like you know I actually could go on and do something here or if I get the head down look what I can achieve but it has a negative impact as well if you like kind of push a child away and are constantly talking down to them and saying Mm. I don't want to say you're stupid because not every teacher says that, but mm. in the condescending way teachers do belittle you, mm. you push yeah. kids away from mm-hmm. the education system Then they're like, oh, I'm not going into school and the teachers are going to give out to me all the time. Or mm. Mm. They make you feel like you're nothing and you, you won't be able to achieve anything. So teachers need to realise their position in the child's life. As you said, that's where you develop. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? But teachers do, you know if,
2: do you know if you're down the back of the class and you're not understanding the, con- the content of the class and the teacher doesn't say you're stupid, but he just leaves you off. He's telling you you're stupid. That's how you're yeah. perceiving it as a mm. child, you know. You're not worth the time, basically. No, you're not. And and then you're like, right, he's not helping me, but he's helping the other people, you know. So that means I'm not worthy and I'm stupid. But that kills your self-esteem. And I would say to teach and we have a lot of teachers access our podcasts because we talk a lot about education and stuff like that. But, like, if you're, if you're in a class with 15 pupils and there's one or two in the class that are finding it difficult, they are, the t- they are the children that need most of your attention. They are not the children that should be on the back. They should be up the front. Yeah, because not the children that are up the front that are flying academically. They ha- they have it. Whatever they're probably from stable homes. They have a natural flair for it. They don't need so much attention, but the problem is they get all the attention because that's where the teacher gets the reward. Oh, I got my class at six A's, you know, I got I got eight students got first class honours, but that's nothing, that's not a reflection on you if nine students got F's or, yeah. or they're struggling and getting out of know, the mindset of school is about creating workers where school should be about. The psychosocial development, the psychological development, the social development of the child, and if the child becomes academically intelligent as a result of that, fair enough. But the goal here should be to create happy children, and let the children find their way. But I want to touch on one thing you you spoke there about. um you know your relationship with employment and stuff like that growing up? And what you're talking about there is like masculinity for for males in areas like Aran. And I was the exact same. I used to look at people going to work and I used to think, there's a gourmet. Now, a gourmet is a word we use, you like fool, you know? Yeah, said, sausage. A sausage, there's a sausage, you know? And uh, but like, and the idea of what a man was or what it was to be manly was to be like uh, aggressive, violent, to take drugs, to go out with a lot of girls, promiscuity, reckless yeah. behaviours, joy, riding anti-social behaviour. But, you know, when you, when you do a little bit of personal development or you get a bit of wisdom with age, you realise, you know what? a real man actually goes to work exactly. and looks after his family legitimately and and you you think that like not going to work and committing crime is an easy life, that's a way harder life. Yeah. Because you'll never have no peace of mind. Do you know any high-profile gangster that got out the other end to live a fulfilled mm. life? They don't. Mm. But you know what? If you, know, if you go to college and do your little course or do a legit job, you might not have half as much money, but you'll have half as much problems and you'll be able to grow old and healthy and see your kids grow and be there for all the milestones.
3: And that's the thing I say to a lot yeah. of people, Like you can live in that lifestyle, but you have to look over your shoulder when you're making your money and you have to look over your shoulder when you're spending your money. And some of them have too much money; they actually
0: can't spend it. So and no even having all that cash, a, no and car. even when the money's gone, yeah, even when the money's gone, you still have to look over your shoulder, exactly. because of the, of the madness of definitely. The life you don't,
3: life. you don't realize you have all that cash; you can't spend on a car, you can't buy a house. It's literally just, yeah. it's, it's more of a problem, having it? Do you, you remember that
2: mean? TV show, uh, The K District, or yeah, yeah? That was the first time in my life, and I'm not telling you, like I never in my life heard of Balenciaga or, or Canada Goose. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't know these brands. These weren't on my we're radar. all culture, I know, but <laughs> I, they raided this young fella's house. He was about 14. His wash bag was worth the 800 euros. Oh, he puts man. his aftershave into it, you know. But it's like the image, and I think TikTok and Instagram, to a lesser extent, they contribute to it. And the big thing in Cork at the moment, is probably up here too, is uh, drug intimidation. So there's back in the day, when we were using, we're in recovery you now, but back in the day, when we were using, especially when we were teenagers, you might get a block of hash, right, 50 euro for a half ounce of hash, a bag of cans, go down into the field and get stoned. You do not have to nobody, right? But these days, young fellas are getting weight. They're getting ounces of weed or coke. They're never going to be able to pay it back. Then they're on TikTok, they think that, they're John Gotti, right? John Gotti's dead, so that won't get cut. But, uh, <laughs> but, but they're on TikTok with, with all this drugs. They're never going to be able to pay it back. And then the mother's and father's doors are being smashed in. They're looking for money. The mothers and fathers have to go to the credit union. They have to remortgage. The gaff get you know, uh loan shark money to pay back the drug dealers. But that's a huge problem. It's mm-hmm. now
1: mad. Look, that's that's now the difference in this generation to our generation. Let's say we were looking to the lads and we were obviously thinking the walking man going out doing that. What the fuck? When we know now mm-hmm. that that's the life to live. But nowadays it's like they're living up to a social media life. Yeah. Look, like, if they're not wearing the kind of gills, the, the Balenciagas, yeah, yeah. and this stand, the Alexander McQueens, well, sure. Here we you look, like, you know what I mean, yeah. and it's all just this reputation and this fake lifestyle that they're all yeah. living. And even these holidays and all they're going over and they're getting loans out to play the credit union. Yeah. And I own that bollocks shelf you know, just to go on a holiday to put pictures on social media. Getting the
3: Rolex is sitting in your local pub, but who are you impressing in your local pub with a Rolex on? oh my watch mm-hmm. is worth ten grand. All oh, right, you're still sitting there buying yeah. the same amount of points as I am.
2: Like, I it, know your your it, watch is ten grand, mine is a hundred. It's j- nine o'clock j- <laughs> on board. Who are impressing?
0: Yeah, but
2: yeah. you
0: know what? <laughs> it's a form of mentality. It's it's a I form. It of is. I would have been that way when I was back in the day, when I was involved in whatever I was. I would have been like that. It was all about the materialistic things they had, the cars, everything that they had. It was all about that, okay? Because that was my mentality, okay? And I'll tell you where my mentality was back then. My mentality was this to go to prison with my father, for my son to carry on the family trade, which was drugs, and for him to be in prison with me. Okay, that's where my headspace was back in the day, you know. Why? Because I looked at young fellows that were in prison with their father and I thought, "I was like, Jesus Christ, own, there was old man, fuckers." You know, it's very that's, prelude, that's how thing. it was in our area, you yeah. know. We looked up to these people, and that's, that was my mentality. But I tell you where my mentality is now here today. Today, it's in a place where. An example one of, one of my my one of our pets died last year okay we had the dog about ten years. she grew up with my son who was eleven and ten years ago if that pet had died and I see my small lad crying to that dog, I would have probably gave him a clip around the back of the head and said, "top stop crying what are you doing? can't show emotion you know you, you're a man I'm teaching you how to be a rough, tough man. You know, we didn't, but you know what I done this time when that dog like, I grabbed my son, I hugged him, he cried, and I told him it was okay. I told him it was a process of life, Mm. and I left him grieve. Yeah. Okay, what I done there was I showed my son how to develop, I develop emotionally and how to, when, when something happens like that in life, that it's okay to cry, you know, that's how much someone can change in 10 years. From where I was ten years ago, wanting all this, then ten years later, that's how human beings can change their whole lives around. So if there is anybody out there that is caught up in all this stuff, there is a path pod- you can change. Yeah, you can change that viewpoint. You know, it was just that my norm, my not, that was my normal life. That's how I grew up around that kind of talk, those people, and that's all I knew. I knew nothing else. I knew nothing else all I wanted to do was be a fucking drug dealer mm. go to prison have everyone afraid of me have the best of everything you know that was it and that and my my family were a part of that as well you know but listen the reason I, I, I mentioned the change there's because I think it's important as well for a lot of listeners who are maybe at that point in their lives and they're going through that change like trying to get out of that world that that, 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 that life you can change that mentality, you know. Life is good. There is a happy ever after after that kind of madness as well. But you have to work on it. That shift sure in mentality
1: is inspirational. Like the fact that you yeah. can sit here and say, like, this is how I was and this is how I am. Like that is genuinely inspirational. And you said something earlier on, and we we're we'll going into his stories individually now in a second as well, and how he's got the way as well. But you said something earlier on to me that really get made gave me like a good perception of where you were in life years ago and you said something about you wanted that respect mm-hmm. there and where you were from and that was the people who you were looking up to so you say you were getting bullied mm-hmm. these bullies respected these people mm-hmm. in prison and stuff like that and you wanted to be like them do you want to fill yeah. it in there
0: well it's as simple as that I grew up in a, in a home my mother single parent brought up three boys in her own you know um, severe mental health issues within my family and home ok School was not an option for me because I couldn't get an education because I couldn't. There was too much going on at home, and I went through the education system undiagnosed with dyslexia as well. Okay, so school was a really difficult place for me. Number one, but home was just as difficult. Then the street, out the street, was just as difficult again because we were poor. There was a smell on me. We'd the bed every night of the week because I, I had so much fear instilled in my body from the stuff that was going on at home, you know. So I'm going out, there's a smell on me. I would have went to school with, with 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 soccer boots that with the studs taken off him as a young child because we couldn't afford it. I would have snuck in during the lunch breaks to go in and get more buns and, you know, the, 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 the old school lunch that you get just to feed myself because that's how tough it was growing up, you know. Going home then, my mother, God bless her, she had a really difficult, difficult life, you know. She was really, really, really destroyed in terms of her mental health and she couldn't get hold of it. And I was the oldest of three boys and that was my life for a long, long time. Got involved in crime at a young age, took my first solvent at a young age, maybe 10, 11 years of age, sniffing gas, petrol, you know, and then escalated. You know, I got involved in crime at a young age, you know, these are all things I got, got involved in because of my circumstances. I was bullied on the street as a young child. And if I dare and go in that door crying, you'll be sorry, you know. you would be sorry. And I didn't, you know, I would stay out there and fucking, didn't matter how big they were, I'd take the bait and, you know, and i fight back. And it made me a tough, tough kid, you know, from a really, really young age, like, I wanted to take my own life as a young child, because of my situations. And um, I cut completely off at a young age, and I went up in stairs. I just completely shut off from every emotion that was in my body. I never felt excitement anymore. Do you know the excitement you feel for Christmas and the the school tours? That all stopped at a certain point in my young life. And it it was like nothing kind of got me anymore, do you know, because of um, just... I lost all forms of trust for human beings. Love wasn't something that I'd... You know, I became a right mad mad child, you know, fucking... And um, bullying. I would have stood up to bullies as a young child. And you know, what, uh, this is very important. When, when you stand up to a bully and you get the best of a bully, okay, what happens then is that you have to keep that kind of trail up because if you don't, you're vulnerable again. And that's and that that was something I had to carry through my whole life. Then that kind of macho, like like image of my of myself, you know. And um, I went in my I, my first overdose. It was prescribed meds and a bottle of whiskey. I'd robbed my grandmother's um, medication. She was minding us in the house, and uh, she was staying. With, my mother was alive at the time, um, and she was staying with us. And my mother had a partner at the time, and. Uh, he was out working. He was a bouncer, I think. And I, I, I took her, her medication out of her bag and I took a bottle of um, uh, whiskey and I drank it in the drive And I was found in the driveway of the house when he came in later on. Brought out to the hospital. All the shit they do, they, they give you the charcoal and all this next day there was a priest there and a psychiatrist and sure I was out of my head. Because the, the, the night before when I was into the hospital, the... I I was very fucking aggressive and, and all this shit, you know, and uh, that was it, you know. I went into treatment at 15, you know, stayed in one treatment centre for six, seven months, came out of there, went into another one after there to France for another two years, you know. Um, I had a few charges to come back to, from France for assaults, for violent assaults while I was drinking. I got a four year suspended sentence at the age of 18 for an assault that I'd committed when I was 15 or 16. Mm. Um, and I slowly went back into the drug scene then. I had only taken ecstasy and prescribed meds and alcohol before that. Right, about 19 when I still took my first line of cocaine and that was it then. It was game over. Mm-hmm. Because that gave me something I'd never, ever experienced. The ecstasy gave me love, okay? The prescribed meds gave me... <laughs> just took everything away. Numbness, just, yeah. Just, but the cocaine gave me confidence. confidence yeah. Mm. Right. Taking on me the Confidence, world. it gave me self esteem to go up and talk to women, and you know, fucking be the by and all this, and <laughs> do you know. But I was taking large quantities of steroids as well at the same time. I was off my fucking game. Do you just know. Last round. Yeah.
3: Through the roof, like
0: off. Do you know, I was 17 stone at about 19 years of age, and Jesus. I was. Do you know, I was completely mad. Violent as well, with yeah. drugs and me and stuff, and that went on for a number of years. Two kids going on, two kids. Then during that time, my daughter was born in two thousand and seven. My my wife today was my partner back then, and I, like whenever I'm talking about my story to anybody, the people I'm telling like just yeah. You know, you yeah, hardly at the same woman, yeah. I'm not to be thinking the same thing to me. hardly the same moment. Okay, hell. But, but same the reality, life. she stayed by me like my, it would be a drinking drug binge for me. And the binge would be a week, two weeks, you know. And then, it, like, I wasn't getting enough after drinking drugs. Gambling was there, other stuff. Robbing, I got robbing for the buzz of the robbing. Didn't have to rob because I had money for drugs and stuff like that. But I got a buzz out of it, I got a kick over, going out oh, fucking you know, no consideration for, for, for people or their belongings or anything. I just didn't care whether I lived or died, to be honest with you at the time, you know. That wasn't even the concern for me. That went on for for the whole of my twenties, straight through, until I hit thirty one. And um I was just on my way to prison at this stage for a violent assault and robbery. You know, something that to this, to this day I, I can honestly put my hand up and say I can't even remember. You know, I woke up in the cell the next morning with a white coat on me with the thing I thought I was after murdering my other brother because he was with me in the tour so after taking a load of tablets. And we were drinking vodka and had no clue until the the, the guards inside the interview room told me later on the day what happened. And um, I was, it, you know, it was a relief. That I didn't kill somebody, mm. but I feel shitty because of what we were after doing as well, you know. And um, that happened in 2009. Continued, drink that didn't stop me the drinking drugs. Kept going for another few years until the 26th of December 2011. And I ran out of money on a drinking drug binge and i done another robbery. And I, uh, I got caught for it. And I had a big scuffle with the guards, brought to the station anyway. I was covered in pepper spray. I was completely naked in the cell. But I was after planking a bag on me, bag of uh, drugs on me before I went to the cells. And the only thing that was going through my head from the moment they arrested me to the moment they left the cell was the drugs that, that were there. And uh, something happened to me that night. And I just had this glimpse of awareness, this information came through, and she said, what are you doing with your life? This is St. Stephen's Day now, okay? No contact with my children at Christmas, okay? Nowhere to stay. The girls were looking for me. It was after breaking a bail all for another church. I was My wife, my parents at the time had me gone out of the house. And people were just sick to dead of me, because I was just... I was just constantly hurting people you know and, and when I say hurting them I was hurting them because of the carry-on I was then they loved me I was, yeah. they loved me like and and that I was remember crawling around that cell floor right trying to pick up white pieces of paint off a grey floor thinking that there were little cracks of cocaine but, and that that came to me and I got up on top of the bed inside the cell and I cried and I cried and I cried, and I cried. I got out the next day the following night and um, I got a taxi up to, to my partner's house. She, I knocked the door and I begged her to leave me in to sleep on the couch because I had nowhere else to go. And um, she paid for the taxi. And the next morning I went to the doctor. He put me on, he put me on a, 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 an antidepressant and he put, sent me to a counsellor and that was the start of my journey. I went to treatment in February, came out of treatment at the end of February, I went to prison at the start of March, and I that's when I continued my journey then through the education, through psychotherapy, drug counsellor, all these different things, personal development day, and I just kept going. I had two brothers on the landing with me. I went to the Midlands first on my own. One of my brothers came over from Portleigh. When I went into prison, the first day I went into prison and, and, and in March, I went in with one brother. I had two brothers on the landing. There's three of us there. But I have two half-brothers as well for my father. So there was four of us on the landing. Four brothers on the one landing. I was there two days and they shipped me up uh, up the Midlands. They put Tommy up to Port Leash. They left John Paul there. And we had another brother, Roy. He's my half-brother as well for my father. And um, I was in the Midlands doing my thing anyway. Tommy came over for a weekend visit. Family, they do that, and uh, he set, decided to stay <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> he enjoyed, he tried to, enjoyed let's the just court. say he, he not, he enjoyed the nightlife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and we were about nine months into our sentence, and um, I got a my, my door opened early one morning, and uh priest came in to me with the chief and the and. He told me my mother was after taking her own life in the family home. And um, I was distraught. You know, I wasn't speaking to my mother at the time because I was dealing with a lot of emotional stuff from my childhood. And it was her birthday the day before. So she died and the third, it was her birthday on the second. You know, and I spoke to her the night before in the office because Tommy and me were speaking to her in the office. And... Uh, I popped in and I said hello, how are you? She promised me she was going to go to counselling and all these things, and uh, I, I thought it was great, you know. And um, so the next morning she took her own she took her own life that night, and um, I was destroyed. I was riddling guilt because I didn't. I wasn't speaking to her. We didn't have a relationship. right? I, I was minding myself at the time, and I stayed clean. I st- you know, we had a conversation about clean a well while ago about the the war to clean. But I stayed away from alcohol and drugs, even though I was going through all this stuff. At the time, I managed to get through it because I had some really good people in prison that were helping me, you know, the psychology department. And I continued my journey through the education. I stayed in the Midlands for a few years. Then I went on to an open prison, you know. And I was able to get, get out in the community return scheme. And I went home to my family, right? I continued with education. I went down to further education and third-level education. And I kept up my psychotherapy, you know. Um, but it was tough. It was a tough, tough road, you know. It was a really difficult road, you know, because um, I wasn't no inside in a prison setting and learning how to live. I was at home with two young children and a wife. And I had to learn to to be a father, something that was unknown to me because I didn't have a father, I wasn't taught. I'd be inside the prison and I'd be reading parenting books to see what's the best way to be a father and asking the lady in the library, like, how how am I supposed to behave when I go home to my children like I've never been there before, you know, And, and it was all that kind of stuff. And when I went home, things got too much for me. And I had to go back to my doctor and tell him I was completely depressed. Like, I I lost all the peace that I had because I had responsibilities now. And I had to learn to live on the outside it, with a family and responsibility. Something that I'd never had before. You see, you have to understand this. When somebody's addicted to substances or alcohol or whatever addiction, that addiction is the main thing that's going on in their head 24-7. 365 days a year. Nothing else. Nothing, and that's, that was my life, constantly, and now I'm at home and I have I've, I've all these responsibilities I have to provide, you know, for, for financially, I have to mind them, you know, I have to be there for my wife, you know, who, who's after just spending the last few years in the room with the children, bringing them up. My son now is going on four, and I'm in, in his life for the first time. And he's saying, "Who's this fella?" Like, yeah. And you're trying to move him from our bed, my my wife and my wife's bed, into his own bed. And he's saying, "He's and in there. I've been here for the last four years." Yeah. Do <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff? These are all new things. But like, listen, um, I just kept going. I just had this belief within me here that that uh, my life is there for bigger things. You know, I'm, I'm better than I'm better than what I was. Doing. I never felt. That what I was doing all those years, like, was who I was as a human being. But it was like, I had to do them because if I left that macho image down, that vulnerability, Mm. that child, that little boy that was really sad and and, and, and so innocent would be very vulnerable. And and I didn't want that to to happen again. But slowly, but surely, you can drop that armour. You know, and it's an armor, and it's an armor here. You know, and, and you can drop it, and and you can open up, and um, it takes time, because <laughs> I'm still learning. Let me tell you, <laughs> you know, uh, it takes time. But today, listen, I I've I've been through a lot since I got out of prison, an awful awful lot. You know, uh, and we spoke earlier on about behaviors. Behaviors are a massive thing for people that have been. Caught up in addiction in prison and socialised all these different things. It's not about just dropping the drink and the drugs; it's the behaviours. Like I was a few years home, you know, and I still had issues with anger, and I would have jumped out of the car one day, you know, and road raging and and nearly assaulted somebody on a bike because they stuck up their finger at me, you know, that kind of rage. I nearly went back to prison over that, you know, but I learned a lot from it. It's in the blink of an eye as well. Like that. My wife was in the car with my children. You know, all I seen was this, okay? This is what I seen. This fella's just after insulting me. Who does he think he is? I'll fix him. Does he know who he's messing with? Do you know? That was my ego, head, mind, do you know? And and I couldn't leave anybody see me not do anything. No, I'm there. You know, I couldn't just be, I just allow it to happen and walk away, you know, and um, I, I learn from things like that, you know, today I do learn from things like that and um, I I try to live an honest, honest life as, as, as best as I can, I watch my company, I watch the places I'm going around, I watch what I'm doing and I'm growing, growing every single day and growing and and we were speaking about role models earlier on in the conference, and I'm a role model for my children today, okay? And, I, and, and I'll just explain why today I'm changing that generational aspect of trauma with my family, mental health, addiction. All my family were all destroyed from addiction, I mean, my brothers, you know. And that stopped today. Education, my kids know no it's. it's the next step is their... After secondary's college, if, if if that's what they want, they want You know, these are there. these weren't options for us growing up. You know, that was never there. You know, so that's positive role model today. You know, and that's what i That's that's one of my most important roles in life is to be that. You know, so the hurt and pain that was continuing through my family for all these different generations stops here now they'll go through their own stuff as well God knows but they'll learn how to deal with issues in life a lot more Mm. easy and they don't have to inherit yours yeah exactly and I'm very we we have to be very cautious as parents that we don't pass them on as well yeah you know what I mean we can their children we can teach them as best we can okay but we can also have a bit of crack you know we can have a bit of mess here and there and, and you can love them and Make sure you tell your child every single day that you every love day. him. Every day. Every day, like, and hug him, you know. And what's more, well, how do you show a child love? Give him time. Mm. My child's smart says to me there one year, but two years ago, I was so busy with college and everything else, and, he's, and he says, he says, Dad, all I want is a bit of time. All I want is a bit of time, you know. What did I do? I, I, I didn't even go to college that day. I just, I couldn't. I started crying because it's just all he wanted. He wanted nothing else but just a few hours with his daddy and that's it, you know, and and um, and that's my life today. You know, that's my life today. I still deal with a lot of stuff internally, stuff that I still work around on a daily basis. Fear, mm. shame, guilt, all these things that, that I don't want to be passing on to my children. You know, I still have to deal with them, processing them, you know. I'm still in education today. I went back to education there in the last few weeks. I'm very passionate about meditation and mindfulness, and I'm doing a master's in mindfulness in UCC at the moment, and and that's helping me to really bring my, my meditation practice onto the next levels, which is, I'm, I really, really, really love at this moment in time, you know, because it's coming at the right time. Because myself and James... I've been completely flat out there these last 12 months, you know, and um, it's something that I need and it'll also help us as well to go forward, you know, into the next level and maybe move into a different field and, and so we can work around that area, you know, and that's our goal is is to move away from our full-time jobs and move into the podcast stuff full-time and be able to make a living for it and, give, and, and create more content and... and valuable content and help people that are coming up behind us with the same experiences growing up, you know, and, um, and that's our goal at the moment is that, and it's happening, you know, it's, it is happening, and we do have a belief in that, but I suppose when you're stretched out as we are t- at the moment, it can be
1: <laughs> very hard to see mm-hmm. that too. we is juggling a lot at the yeah. moment, the two years are. You mentioned the word role models there, but you, the two years are role models. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, you just don't get to the platform you always have by not being role models, you know? You always have thousands of people who look up to us mm. and see the journey as are on and where as are now from where you as well before. And of course, James, will jump into you now in a second, mm. but, like, yeah. to hear that story there is, is unbelievable. And even I can relate to the guilt and the shame and I still have the, all that in me as well, you know what I mean? And mm. the main times I got an urge to go back drinking and using it is when I start thinking of things that I've done in the past. I'm like... Oh, fuck's sake. And I read a quote there the other day, and it was, people aren't addicted to drinking drugs, they're addicted to escaping reality. And that set with me really hard, because when I get a nose to drink, I think in my head, really, what, what what, am I going through now that's making me feel like this? And it usually is that i have been thinking of, guilt and shame and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And it's tough to deal with, and we're all learning every day, you know? <clears throat> but... I think with the likes of yours, yourself speaking about it, boys, it does help, you know what I mean? That story there alone is it helping me. Mm. You know what I mean? So imagine how many thousands of
2: people is listening to that and going, fuck me, man, look what they're at the main town, look where they are now. Mm. You know what I mean? And so. you mentioned respect there. That's the best. I only said this to Timmy today or yesterday. It's like, you know when we meet people that we don't know, but they feel like they know us because of the podcast, there's a respect there and people respect us for what we're doing. And when I was in addiction, I had no respect. You know, because when, like, I'll go into my story a little bit, but the, the nuts and bolts for any, I became a heroin addict in the end. And heroin addicts is a very stigmatised kind of drug. I remember back in the day, I was off back at of the gaff. Uh, That's a funny story. Like, but, uh,
0: <laughs> I knew this one was going to come up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, I, I, you know, if I, the, odd, the odd day I'd spruce myself up if I had an few <laughs> quid in the pocket, you know, get dolled up, go to the pub, end up back at the gaff. Sometimes Timmy's there, sometimes he isn't. But the, the boys could be snorting a mountain in the coke off the table lecturing me on drug use. Yeah. Mm. Because my drug was brown and their drug was white. But the point I'm making is do you know when you use heroin, you're the bottom of the barrel. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. And you feel every bit of that. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're in that space, you feel the shame, guilt, you feel dirty, you're no good, you're not worthy of respect, you know? So the best thing about what we're doing now is that people respect us. Uh, and I think that's that, that's a great place to be because more than riches or fame or anything like that, you just want to be respected for who you are, do you know. But I suppose uh, I'm actually originally from Dublin. I was born in the Coombe Hospital. He's one of those days, yeah. and, uh, I, was, I was born in the Coombe in 1985 on Halloween night, which is coming up. <laughs> and um, my dad is from Inchicore, so I've would have been raised the same Pats fan, yeah. And uh, you know, and the Dubs fan in the year. And I managed the time in Richmond Park, I was the mascot for of Pats and everything, or, or in Hill 16, shouting for the dubs in my Cork accent, but I felt a bit stupid around 15, 16, saying, go on Dublin, if you're playing Cork, you know. So I kind of, you know, I, I'd be more of a Cork city and Cork GF, I know, but it was always like, my Dublin roots was always very much present in my childhood, you know. Mm. Um,
1: and
2: my the Dublin culture, and, and and that was always a big part of the household and I spent a lot of time in Dublin as well um, so I was always at a close connection to Dublin but um, when we were my mum is from Cork City the north side a place called Corona, And uh but in the 1985 when I was born I have a brother five years older uh, my mum would have been 22 with two kids and my dad left for England in 1986 you know Dublin, Ireland was a mess in the mm. mid 80s recession a lot of men left to go working in England and my dad was one of them but my mum then, we lived in a place called Neilstown over in Clondalkin. I don't remember now, I was only a baby. But uh, it, it was rough enough back then, it's probably still rough enough. But Dublin also had a heroin epidemic at this time. So my mum was like... Uh, do you know, she's probably isolated and lonely there being a cock young mother, two, two boys and no husband around. So uh, she wanted to move somewhere quieter, so she moved to Knocknohinie in 1986, which was probably the roughest estate in Munster at the time, do you know? But um, do you know, boys, when you're from an estate like that, it's only rough to people that's outside us. We say but, it all
3: the time. Yeah. Literally, like, I do say that a lot of people they would be like, oh, I wouldn't go down to Halber Street or mark Air Machine, and I'd be like, why? Like, take a walk down there, and you realise. You know. And they're like, they're walking around waiting for something to happen that never happens, and yeah. you're like, you, you don't realise how
1: these these places are stigmatised. But when you're in it, it, it's all you know. Like when, yeah. it, when that's all you know, yeah. It, it, like you know what I mean? I think from the outside it's completely different, but when
2: you're in the midst of it, you're like, this is all we know. This is Grant. So we moved from Dublin to Cork in 1986, and I was only a few months old into a place called Nahini, which was on the northwest of Cork City. So in Cork City, you have you have a city not as big as Dublin, um, and then on the outskirts, as the the city grows, places get built onto it and get built onto it. So it would be like uh, no like no like Talla, where you have like yeah. it built up here, but then you've a lot of countryside, outside, yeah, it, yeah. and horses and and. quad quad bikes and stuff like that, that's kind of like where we grew up. So we're close to the city centre, but everything past our area is fields and farms and stuff like that, you know. Blarney is on the road. But um, it's, you see, there used to be a lot of employment. It's a social housing area. The whole area is just social housing, which was great when everybody was working. But when there was a recession and most people weren't working, then that, like, unemployment and poverty breeds... Mental health and addiction, doesn't it? I and mean, when you have mental health and addiction, a huge amount of it in one small area, you're going to get social issues. And in Knocknaheeny, there's a big road that goes up the back of it, it's about a mile or so long, and it was just a straight road, and it was a big hot spot for joyriding. So Knocknaheeny got a big reputation for a joyriding area, even though a lot of the joyriding would be from fellas coming up to use the road mm. but Knock Nahini to be fair no, there was a lot of gyro in the you know but that was where Knock got the reputation but um the north side in general has a reputation for being a tough area and to, to be in uh, to be in that area uh, there's like a, it's a stigmatised area as well you know or you're from there and it's like uh, you know if you're playing soccer or GA and you went to another community for a match Under 10s or under 12s, they'd be calling you the K word, you know, that describes a traveller that I won't say, or they'd be calling you a junkie or a scumbag, and you're like, you're only 10 or 12. (laughs) And this is from the parents on the sideline. It's like, uh, do you remember Thunderland, the Murrays Yeah. Right, so Funderland comes to Cork we used to go to Mahin, which is on the south side which is another rough area but it's on the south side and we'd share the number two bus the number two bus would go from Knocknohini City Centre Mahin, Mahin City Centre so when we're getting the bus to Funderland we get the bus from Knocknohini to Mahan all we want to do now is go on the Walsers. and we go on and Mahin because you're from Knocknohini they expect you to be violent and tough all we wanted to do was the bumpers and the waltzers and they went for with bars and hurlies and everything because they think you're coming down to wreck the gaff, but you're not. Well, yeah. But it's just the reputation goes before you because of the stigmas of the area and the stereotype. Do you know, like I don't know if you're ever in the situation where somebody asks where you're from, and then you tell them, and then they're like, oh, as if you know, as if like you're going to pull out a so machete. It's still,
1: still today, still today, yeah, it's to tell that yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's madness. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, can even say, oh, the north in the city. They go, oh, Jesus.
2: You go, <laughs> I know, I know, like you're just you're going to put out a handgun or something any minute, you know, <laughs> but uh, but, that, but that's where you grow up and, and like when you're a child, you're innocent enough, but you know, I suppose at home for me then, um, my dad came to Cork, he was a bouncer, he got involved in crime then, there was a lot of uh, issues at the in the home then with him and my mum and uh, the guards and he went to prison then when I was about 12 and uh, I found that very difficult, do you know, having my dad in prison, I was always very close to him, you know, and um, you know I looked up to my dad, Like when it, it, he ran about role models earlier on, do you know, if your dad is a mechanic, there's a good chance you'll probably want to be a mechanic, but where we're from, if your dad is doing a certain event, that, or a certain thing that other people might look down their nose on, but to you, your dad is the biggest, strongest, best man in the world. Yeah. Uh, and you idolise him. And that's the way it was with me. And he just happened to be involved in this illicit drug trade, you know. So, um, and growing up as well, Timmy's f- f- a few years older than me. Um, I would have looked up to Timmy as well. Timmy was involved in drugs. And I'd have looked up to the older people that had the, the, the Air Max and the, 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 the 501s or the nice car or the nice women. And I was like, that was, that was what I wanted. I didn't want to work on a building site breaking my ballocks. I wanted to do what they were doing. Mm. You know, so um but when my dad went to prison then I was always bright in school. So English, history, geography, the academic stuff was always kinda of came to me without much effort. And I uh, was good in sports, loved soccer, so all I wanted to do. Roy Keane was like my idol, you know. Still is. <laughs> Although if I met him I have to try and play it down a little bit because he's real cool. But um, <laughs> I went so My dad went to prison He was 12 I was going into secondary school I got into a lot of ish, A lot of shit in secondary school It was a Christian brother school It was quite strict There was no soccer allowed It was strictly GA, You know one of them Old school mm. Schools And um, I have no good memories Of that school Do um, you know We were on about the education piece theory or, or Earlier on Like I was bright but for whatever reason, well for the reasons I now know now, because I had a parent in prison, my mum wasn't able to handle me. You know, We were poor as well because we didn't have the money that used to be in the house, you know, and uh, my brother was older; he moved out, I kind of got lost, you know, and um, so I wasn't able to sit in school or retain the information or I was just badly behaved in school, but there was no, none of the teachers ever ask you what's going on yeah. or why. White, James is obviously bright, white, white, and he getting involved. There was never any of that It was like, you're a tug, you're a skirt, get outside the class, you're suspended, and all these things, you know. So I did not like school. But the gas one then, you know, years later, last year, the school is a famous school now. And uh, they were 120 years old last year. And they did up on Twitter, you know, hashtag 120 anniversary. Notable students. There was John Creeden There was Patrick Horgan, the famous hurler. There was uh, Terence McSweeney, you know, an Irish patriot. There was uh, Neil Tobin, a very famous actor, Jonathan Reese Myers, actor, and then James Leonard. So they were, like, celebrating me, you know. And I was like, if they give me half as much fucking energy, you know, when I was in the school, (laughs) I wouldn't have fucking happened the story I have. Possibly, you know. Because Timmy said it, you know, schools are an important place for the development of the child. And if a child's falling through the cracks there, you're setting the chains in motion for what came on down the line. So what I know now through psychology and school and stuff like that is the core conditions for addiction were there long before I picked up. Yeah. So when I picked up, I was always going to end up in addiction because of all the uh, the adverse childhood experiences or trauma that we speak about, you know, that were all there. So when I picked up that self-esteem, the anger, the hurt and all this stuff I had, when I took a drink or sniffed the petrol or the gas or whatever, I felt great. Hmm. and it's like you know it's very normal for a teenager to experiment with substances nearly everybody will do it whether you're from Fox Rock or Ballymun all teenagers will have a smoke of a giant or have a swig of a bottle of bud it's normal but when you're from the areas like where from or the backgrounds where from you're more likely to use it problematically so like if you're from a stable family that have lots of resources and you're not worried about you know being poor or uh, mental health issues in the home and stuff like that When you experiment with that bottle of butter, that giant, you'll move out of that phase fairly quickly and move on with your life. You can pull it away, like... Yeah, but when you're using that substance to give you what you don't have, like confidence, self-esteem, emotional hurt, and next the bottle of butter makes all that fine, then it's like, right, now I need that, because I feel shit without it. Whereas the other child, they don't feel shit because they're from, you know, a bit of stability. So when I started experimenting with drugs, it was addiction straight away. It was always... um very problematic drug use, it was like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going out drinking with your friends, and you get a two litre each, it'd be like a two litre and a an nagging, you know, it was mm. like always taking it to the to mm. the extreme, it was always like, get drunk and have a laugh, but it was get drunk and pass out, blackout, and it was always blackout, pure addiction, and uh, around 17, I finished school, 17, 18, 18 started going to prison, then for anti-social behaviour, joy, right, in public order. We started taking a lot of tablets, like Timmy spoke about there. I was in prison, though, down through the years with a lot of dubs, and Zimmo's was the big thing for the dubs. Yeah. Zimmovane, this, Zimmovane, that. But in Cork, it wasn't so much Zimmovane. It was like uh, a Valium, Zanax, Rohypnol, Halcyon, these lots of tablets, you know. But when you give a volatile group of young flas, and in our area, there was loads of people like me and Timmy, and we all congregated together. And we was all drinking, it was a big part of the story. But if you have a 17, 18-year-old full of testosterone and heart, and you give them an a an egg and, a porno and ten xanax, there's gonna be mutiny. And waking up in a guard station not remembering how you got there was, you know, black blacking out and doing stupid stuff, you know. So that started the cycle of prison. And but there's a part of me then thinking that Prison was cool, you know? Because Timmy was up there and my dad used to be up there and some of my friends' brothers were in there and it was like a, a rites of passage for people mm. in our estate. Yeah. I was like, I went in for a fine for a, I got caught with a nod at a UB40 gig. I didn't pay the fine. I got five days in default. I went in, I did three days and I came out with stories like a fella that like did 30 or... Do not know the way you're 18? Yeah. like, yeah. i seen this flyby he was in there, but he got slashed this way and he got... no. Oh bravado and ego normally you're young and you think that is cool but i didn't realize what was ahead of us you know and the drugs got more worse and worse and um unlike dublin cork didn't really have a heroin problem in fact it was non-existent and if you look at the health research board's website which is a great resource for people that are interested in this stuff for the the number of people accessing treatment in cork for heroin use in 2003-2004 was only one or two i think. Uh, because it wasn't a big thing in Cork it wasn't uh, but what happened around that time was Spike Island was a prison that used to mm. be in Cork that closed in 2004 and a lot of the young fellas that between the ages 16 and 24 that used to go there started going to Weefield, St. Patrick's Mountjoy, where heroin would be in the thing and I think for the first time, a lot of those young fellows were being exposed to heroin use and they're picking up the connections as well. Yeah. You know, And back in the day as well, Cork Prison was a very clean prison, in inverted commas for people that are listening. It was a f- relatively drug free environment, you know, because there was no physical contact visits. And um, so a lot of the dubs used to come from Mountjoy, Weefield, to Cork to dry out and get off the drugs. And I met a lot of dubs. They're down and they're, they're they're clean, and that's the word I use today. And I know some people don't like that word, but they're they're clean or they're drug free. They're healthy. They're going to the gym. Cork was one of the only gyms. Uh, prisons with free weights in in the gyms, you know. So it was an attractive place for people that was trying to dry out. But I think the the heroin uh, came into Cork. I think through those connections with the prisons and the criminal justice system as well. And then around that time as well, am um, do you know, a couple of years down the line, we had a recession as well, you know, 2007, 2008, and that's then where heroin starts becoming a big thing, you know. And nearly in all heroin, and any heroin epidemic, if you look at Dublin in the 80s, Edinburgh, Liverpool, Europe, there was a huge recession in the 80s, and heroin comes in, and it's a, nat- it's, it's a, it's a natural painkiller mm. from opium. And like, what, what better way to kill your time of joblessness, hopelessness, and worthlessness than taking heroin? And it was very easy for me to make the progression from benzodiazepines and heroin because Timmy used to take stimulants, you know, to kind of get, get him going. I used to take heroin and tablets just to kind of numb me, and I didn't feel anything. And I remember, you know, uh, you ever see somebody to take a lot of tablets is just, yeah. you know, just completely gone. Zombie fight, do you know what I mean? Um, there wasn't so much alcohol then when the heroin came in, and we were smoking it. How him. old were you when you first tried heroin? 21, 21, yeah, yeah. around 2005, mm. uh, 2021, 20, 2005, and smoking it for a while. And I, I, see, I I thought that smoking heroin was like a safe or not more non addictive yeah, way. We hear this all the time, yeah. Yeah. like if you're not injecting it, you're all right, yeah. 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 And my idea of heroin was like dubs. You know because this neat HIV yeah. homelessness, and there I was smoking it on tin tinfoil in a cozy gaff, feeling lovely. I said, This is fucking grand, you know. But eventually, I suppose we had it for a while, and then we didn't have it. And when we didn't have it, I was sick. Now it was like a cold or a bad flu, and I just thought it was a cold or a bad flu two or three days. So then your man got it again, the fella that we used to get it off, and uh, two lines off the tin tinfoil, the sickness completely gone. I know then that that wasn't the flu, yeah, that yeah. was sickness from girl.
3: I don't think sorry just going to yeah. rush, I don't think a lot of people realise that, that your body actually becomes dependent on this. Yeah. So like heroin addicts actually need heroin to survive. Yeah. And coming off it going cold talk, you can't actually kill your body will actually shut down. So I don't think a lot of people realise that and they'll be like, Ah, you're on heroin, it's your own fault. But it's like, no, they actually need to be on heroin now. Mm. That's how, how it operates with your system.
1: I've started like, off as a bit of fun and a bit of numbness. And now it's... Your body literally... And that's where the down. expression...
3: You know, often hear someone say, oh, I'm dying sick. That's because they haven't had it in a, a day or two. And it really does have that adverse effect on your body. That's why... Yeah. That's why I, I think it really does need to be considered a health issue, because there is. Absolutely. It's not a criminal issue. It's a health issue. Your body is yeah. dependent on this.
2: You yeah. know? Do you know? And, and and you'll be so sick that... It's like you will do anything not to be sick. And if that means robbing from your mum, which I did, or ripping people off that you... Do you know, your friends or the associates, I did that too. Do you know, you will do whatever it is, the blinkers are on, right? Like a horse. The blinkers are on, and all you see is at the end is the prize to get the drug. And all the rest of it is collateral damage along the way. Do you know, and then when you get the drug and you consume the drug, the blinkers come off, and then you're looking at the devastation you're causing. Mm. And then that guilt drives like more drugs and more drugs and for me i suppose going into prison then it was like possession of dr- possession of drugs uh, theft and all stuff related to heroin really do you know and uh so eventually i moved on to using needles which was always going to happen and if people hear us smoke and listening to this or smoking heroin they think they'll never touch a needle you will touch a needle definitely it's do you a- remember how Why you force you use the needle I know how I know how because um, at the time there was a drought in Cork, and there was this type of heroin but you couldn't smoke it, so like so I had to be injected. I had to be injected, and a friend of ours, um, who I won't name, <laughs> for obvious reasons, <laughs> well, he he did it for me. And I remember, you know, when you're smoking heroin, let's say you've a fifty bag a girl. Mm. and you put it up in the tin file. and you run it up and down the tin file and it leaves track marks. And after a while, it, it, it the brown powder turns into like a black plastic beetle. Yeah. And it runs up and down the file until it evaporates and you smoke it. It might take a half an hour to get through the 50 hours worth, but when you inject that 50 hours worth it goes into your blood like that instantly. So it's like the high is way more intense. And it's like when you, when you inject once, you don't want to smoke it again. Because it's a waste. Yeah, you never, yeah. you never, you yeah. never want to smoke it again. The only time I ever smoked after that is if I had a load of it, which was very rare. Yeah, uh, and I was had to come into a few quid, and I was able to have, I was able to inject and then have a few lines, you know, like leisure. Do you know what I mean? More of like the 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 ritual around it. Do you know what I mean? But it was more. Uh, but then what happens then is and anybody that used heroin will tell you it gets to a stage where you're only using that to be sick you don't really get stoned from it anymore but then you want to get stoned so you need a little bit more but it's a fine line then between getting stoned and overdose yeah. and, and overdose started coming into my life then and I was very lucky I was found a few times one time there's two overdoses stand out one was I was up in this bed sit. you might have places in Dublin like this but in Cork Lower Glanmire Road, Wellington Road is a real kind of a bed set hotspot where there's lots of drug use, cheap apartments. And uh, I was in a flat there on my own. I remember I got up, I went over and clicked my scratch 9am, went scored 9.30 back in the gaff at 10am. And I injected two cues into my arm. And I woke up, it was 10 o'clock that night, pitch black. I was disoriented, I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I remember thinking like, I'm very lucky I woke up there because I know a lot of people that didn't wake up like that's an overdose you're not supposed to be out for 12 hours unconscious no. you know your breathing goes so shallow that eventually you'll you know won't get enough oxygen and you'll die but I was I was, we say in Cork if you're lucky I was haunted I was haunted that I actually came around and I remember thinking I knew like but it, it got to the stage as well where like Timmy said I, I felt so shit about myself. I used to go into the chemist, right, and then the chemist, um, now the chemist to be discreet about this, but you're getting needles off the chemist. You just have to give him your uh, initials and in your date of birth, and they give you needles, you know. But you're trying to stuff them, and you're getting your methadone. you're trying to stuff them down your top or down your jacket, you know, and people are seeing you, and you feel like, shit coming out you know and you feel the shame then you feel dirty and then all you want to do is go into some corner the news and you know you're just lying there then you don't give a shit what you know until you come around and you need more and i didn't really care if i lived the right because i didn't feel i was worthy of anything else and um the last overdose i had was uh in cork city again and uh again i was found by somebody who was in the street and i was, I was Piss drunk, Langers, as we say in Cork. I was Langers drunk. And anytime I was drinking, I used to get very reckless in my behaviour because I used to get emotional and all that pain would be heightened with emotion, you know, when I was drunk. I was like, fucking, I'm going to take it all, you know. I took it all, injected, bang, over, found again. And two paramedics and two guards were there when I came around because the paramedics have to come with the guards when they're responding to something like this. And uh, I got up and I walked away. And then a couple of days later, I was walking down through Knocknaheeny, where I'm from, and the guards pulled up next to me. And instead of searching me and asking me, you know, the usual questions, they didn't. They just were asking, like, if I remember a couple of nights ago, and uh, that I need to mind myself, that they know me a long time and they'd never seen me so bad. And I was lucky that somebody phoned me and raised the alarm, and all this concern and kind compassion that I wasn't, I never got that from my guard, because where we're from, the guard wasn't somebody that you would like, they're t- t- to help you, they're like an occupying force and if they drive into the estate, it's like you're on alert until they on. do you know what I mean? And it's like if there's something happened in the estate, you don't ring the guards, we saw it through amongst mm-hmm. ourselves. You know? That was the attitude we're socialised with. But here was this guard breaking that for me, a bit of humanity, that's all it was. And I remember coming away thinking, fucking hell if the guards and all here to show me concern, I must be fucked altogether. <laughs> And uh it, but I did small bit of belief in Timmy said it there. The stuff that he was doing, it didn't sit with him. He knew that there was a better person there, and I I felt like that. I felt like that. I had a bit of nature in me. I felt like I I was a good person. I felt that deep down, and I felt like I tried to get treatment a few times. You know, I tried to, for whatever reason it didn't work or for the, did it for the wrong reasons or I wasn't ready. But I was still alive. And I went again uh, after them guards called me I rang Merchants Cureland which are a Dublin charity mm. uh, There's a treatment centre in Cork but it was too short for me mm. 28 days I knew 28 days wasn't even going to it again yeah. yeah I wouldn't have even gotten me off the methadone Yeah I needed months <coughs> to be taken out of here So I rang Merchants Cureland because I knew they're the big charity in Dublin and uh, eventually they got me into a detox in St. Francis Farm in County Carlow. I was in the detox for eight weeks. I went to the treatment centre, which was on the same facility, for 16 weeks. And when I got out then, I went into a house, belonging to the Cork-Simon community. It was an aftercare house for people in early recovery like me. And uh, there was four of us living under the one roof. Grand, I had a key worker. I started working on a C-scheme cleaning office in Cork. First job in a very long time. I was going to the gym every day, going to NA meetings, you know, doing service, you know, going to coffee shops and all these great things. You know, a bit of freedom, and for the first time in my life, I I was a ha- I was actually happy, and I wasn't trying to get tablets or drinking, and I thought that was impossible. Honestly, no, like I thought like that, my life was over without alcohol and drugs. I thought that that was it, but here I was actually having fun, and enjoying myself and all the things the tablets gave me I don't know if you've ever taken Xanax or Daz you don't have to answer that but what it gives you is confidence mm-hmm. and any any worries that you mm-hmm. have or insecurities you don't care about them anymore but what recovery started to give me was confidence and I wasn't worried or a, a, a self-acceptance you don't have to try to be the tough man I, I was never the tough man or the prison and not that masculinity thing we talk about like that never sat with me, you know what I mean? But here I was a bit of self acceptance, you know? Yeah, it's cool to read books, it's cool, you know, to be smart and all the things that you should be. I remember before uh, they were recruiting people in in corpus and in the school to do the junior sort, and I was the only one in there that had the leaving sort of done. And I was actually embarrassed to be educated. That, smart, that's the mentality it? I had. Yeah. But here I was t- valuing my, my fucking opportunity I had here. And, um, then I started sick, getting sick of the sea scheme after about a year and I wanted to earn money. I wanted to be independent. I was on the dole forever and I started going out with Gillian, my wife now and uh, Gillian is in recovery too and she's got similar stories to myself and Timmy, you know, um, prison and recovery and stuff like that and she was the first person reading assured me university was there for me and long story short, I, I sp- we spoke earlier on, I didn't know, I didn't think I'd be able for university so I did a uh, a level three course basic computers then i did a level five in addiction or in uh, psychology and social studies which was one year and then i got more confident and i started learning about psychology and sociology i began to join the dots then about my my community my country my family and i began to think like we're up there and we're made to believe that we're scumbags and poor and would we ever get off our asses but i started to learn now that there's a whole lot of stuff at play here that's perpetuating this and I got to start to getting a critical eye on issues affecting me. And it helped me understand myself, you know. And then different psychological theories, you know. I began to learn in criminal... I did a a bachelor's degree then in UCC in community work. I started working in the Simon community then where I you know. And I remember one of the first days in the job I was walking and the landing opening the door for somebody. And this guy was walking towards me who I knew I would have used with him in prison and stuff like that. And he comes down to me and says, Ah, for fuck's sake, James, I heard you were doing well and I was like I am I'm working here and it was like moments like that just remember like I'm not too fucking far removed from this at all you mm. know and there go going, but for the grace of God so the long and short of it then is I uh, finished my Masters in Criminology you know I got a couple of awards in UCC publications and everything which was great I was on the Tommy Ternan show January 2020 and out of that then I got a huge amount of people contacting me looking for help and support and information and stuff like that. And I got a lot of media requests as well. And I declined them every one of them. They wanted to do documentaries and all this. And I was overwhelmed and I very felt very exposed. And I was talking with Timmy. And I was like, Timmy, why I fucking feel for you, you know. I said, All these people looking for help and all these media requests, once a piece of me, I was anonymous, you know, all of, overnight. It's like you're on the paper and. Uh, and Timmy was like, "Do you know why?" He says, "Why don't we start our own podcast? Mind doing all their podcasts? We do our own, and podcasting was just becoming a big thing in Cork at the time when Ireland really." Timmy fellow with the big brain, yeah. yeah, straight away yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Keep your story for our own. <laughs> yeah. So that's then how the podcast started, and we thought like as we uh, like. Uh, That we and when he said this earlier on and it really resonated with me we thought that we'd be popular in our local area, weren't we bigger, but we started out as being a podcast around addiction, crime recovery but what we found very quickly was that it didn't matter where you were from there was people all over struggling and for us it manifested in addiction but for them it's manifesting in uh, domestic violence, eating disorders compulsive behaviour, they're from different backgrounds but we'd feel the same pain and it just grew into a general social and health podcast in the end. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter, like we said earlier on. It didn't matter who
1: you have on. Like, you said, probably had a load of comedians on as well. We have comedians on all the time, and they come in here, and we're all sobbing, we're in the hour. Yeah, yeah like, it starts off funny, and then before you know it,
2: actually, this person has a lot of problems as the well. The first live show we did was outdoor in Cork City, beautiful summers there, we'd willowize. Mm. Oh, good luck to you. and crying, riding laughing in a half, <laughs> in an hour, you know. But that's, that's the thing, the thing yeah. This the, the stuff
3: that we talk about in these podcasts, they don't discriminate. Yeah. And that's why they apply to so many people when you realise, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter, you can be crying in a Ferrari for fuck's sake. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. These people, like people go through hardship, they go through addiction, they go through domestic violence, they go through
1: grief, mm. you know, like, it's 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 relatable yeah, across it's like the board. What you're saying a lot of people do feel alienated though, and they feel like, oh, they, oh, I'm suffering here, and no one else knows how I feel. Until people like us come on to this, and we're like, mm. actually, we're struggling with addiction. We're struggling. We're actually still struggling now with guilt and shame, and mm. and there's this going on, that going on. and Then there's people listening, going, actually. I'm fucking going through that. I'm not the only one. And yeah. boom, that's when it starts clicking. You're relatable now. And then work gets around. And like Calvin said, it like, doesn't matter what class you're at, working class, middle class, upper class, mm-hmm. you can still suffer with your mental health. You can still suffer with addiction. You can suffer with these things, you know what I mean? So it, it, these type of things happen to everybody
2: boys. And we're lucky actually where we're from working class areas because... It's not so much of a taboo, really, or a a stigma, but you know, people in middle and upper class areas, they just hide it really well. Where there's no, like, if there's issues going on in our gaff, in our houses. You'd be out in the street screaming and running at each other, least you're venting it. Which you know, in other areas is hidden. Yeah. And all that. Like we had uh Bessel van der Kolk and Gabamette, two very well respected people in the world of trauma and addiction. And what they were saying to us is that you know people that repress all that, it manifests itself in uh long-term autoimmune conditions like uh colitis and you know uh, Crohn's and, lupus. Yeah. and mental you, see, you have to express your anger yeah. and let it out because when you repress it it does it, there's a book the body keeps the score yeah and Penny's always telling us about yeah so we the art of that and, and he was talking to us about you know like even stuff that happened yeah, when you were a child that you can't remember he said but your body remembers it he said like if if, if for example um, there was shots fired through my gaff when he was a child right I don't remember it my brother Keith remembers it you know but I can imagine my body remembers the fear that was in the house and the anxiety because I grew up with a lot of fear and anxiety just in, in me and I was always relief I got from alcohol and substances, you know. But I used to always feel afraid. And I, I can on any given day, but I have to check it, you know. And I have different coping skills now. But back then I didn't. I used what was available as my coping skill, which was a drug or an alcohol. But the best thing about recovery gave me is better coping skills, a heightened awareness. Because when you're fucked from drugs and alcohol and you want a better life, you're forced to do personal development through a residential treatment, 12 steps, counselling, psychotherapy, Way more than the average person but what we have now is you know we've got good lives but we're very busy and uh, just have emotions again yeah that's the main thing is not it? gratitude as well when you're gratitude back. to be removed from listen we come through dublin city i can see the addiction on the street you know and we're just very very lucky to be away from it lads because there's nobody better than anybody else you know we just got a break mm. and at the end of the day we took our opportunity and if people are listening to this and they're struggling you're alive There's something keeping you alive Pick up the phone Ring Merchants Key Ring Coal Mine it doesn't matter who you ring Ring your friend um, But it's there for you Yeah
0: do you, do you know As I'm sitting here I'm listening to you talking about <clears throat> The body stuff there Do you know people that have Drug addictions and alcoholism Right <clears throat> We all know that they're Constantly on the search For whatever The addiction is To get money To get more drugs Whatever and what happens there is the mind is always on that, okay? Now look. Look at other people in your lives that aren't addicts, okay? And they're stressed out of their fucking minds. Completely, okay? For completely silly things that don't even make sense. And they get sick. They get cancers. They get um, autoimmune uh, Sure, you yeah, can get bladed yeah. ulcers from stress. Yeah, absolutely. But listen to this: what drug addict Do you know gets ulcers from stress or has cancer? I know. I never got. I never ever ever had nothing because I never thought about any of this madness when I was on drinking drugs. Because my thinking was always around drink and drugs, nothing else. So I was never stressed out of my mind about anything else. It was just about get drinking drugs you be grand. You know, but there was other people then, just normal people going around their business, not addicts or anything like that, and they're stressed because of work, and they're stressed because of this, and stressed because of that, and they're getting sick, and they're getting very sick, you know, they're getting diabetes because they're not minding themselves, they're getting heart attacks, they're getting cancer, mm. you know. That never happened to me. The only thing, <laughs> the only time that never happened to me is when, when I fucking probably fell or crashed or whatever, I never got any of these things. It's
2: like an advert for addiction, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what my point is? It saves people's lives as well. Mm-hmm. I always say this. If I didn't have alcohol and drugs in my life from a young age, I would have took my own life at a young age because I struggled with my sexuality as a young child. I didn't know I was taught nothing about sex. You know, I had one parent, my mother. I was completely confused. I had no clue... What sexuality I was But you know when it changed for me When I had my first drink When I had my first drink I got the confidence to talk to a girl And I got a kiss You know and then I Then I knew But before that I knew nothing I knew absolutely nothing I knew nothing about life And I don't say that lightly. I knew nothing No one taught me nothing Never I I thought you to go through that To to realise this though Even when I was 30 31 When I stopped, I still knew nothing. Mm. I still didn't know anything. I had no clue. I never filled out an application form in my life ever. I didn't know what my PPS number was when I was 31. You know, I thought I was going to get a fucking heart attack, all right, when I tried to fill out like the Susie because <laughs> <college. laughs> yeah. that was the stress, very really stressful. Yeah. Um, and, and have you ever heard A fight, flight, or freeze?
2: Yeah. Okay Stress responses Yes
0: For me it was the freeze I'd fucking get stressed And then freeze blank mm. Anytime I came across Anything that was stressful A maths question uh, A word I didn't understand And I lost the teacher And I'm thinking about the word And she's gone fucking A page forward And I'm still thinking about the word I'd get stressed Next all of a sudden I'd freeze And I'd go blank Couldn't understand information couldn't retain information i just go blank and that's how I dealt with things I'd freeze cut everything off why? because I taught my body to do that from a young age mm. because of the stuff the, the, the abuse that I suffered as a young child I, 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 I learned to cut off from humanity mm. I learned to cut off the emotions I learned to cut off anything that was stressful that was hurting me or uh, any any sign of danger Bang. You know? And that's what we, we human beings do it like. Animals process it. They deal with it and get on and go out oh, their business whistling. We don't. <laughs> we fucking live with it for the rest of our lives because mm. we hold it with our bodies. And that brings us back to that book The Body Keeps the Score. The body retains the trapped emotion from, from situations in life and it holds it. And what's a thought with an emotion? What's a thought without an emotion? Nothing. But what's to thought with an emotion? It stays there, like, and it mm. brings up a past experience.
2: You know, Paul McCarthy, a friend of ours, I don't know, he gave us the example there. I think it was him, anyway. But he does kind of wellness workshops, you know, around the thinking. But he, I think he gave the example of, you not know, an antelope is being chased by the lioness. That was me. Was it? Was that Jude, that right? was Jules, right? <laughs> that the antelope is being chased by the lioness, but this mm. made a lot of sense to me. Mm. So the antelope is there grazing on the grass right, the lioness comes up behind, antelope takes off, nearly lost his life but he got away, the antelope goes over there and he's hitting the grass and he's after getting over it, which is not for a human we get away, but then we're up in our head about it yeah. for the rest of the day. Yeah. That cunt, that bastard, what the fuck they think is? And all that stress then is going, is rather than just kind of accepting the situation, moving on with it, and then getting on with the rest of your day, yeah. we are ruminating and our, our heads, and that's that has a huge impact on your overall health and well-being, you know? Mm. And we we care about what other people think of us. Yeah. Mm. It's a social so issue, though, that.
3: Like... and it's it's a problem with society we have, you know what I mean? Look, at society today, yeah. Calvin.
0: You know, we're being told that you have to have your teeth look like this, you have to have, women have to have boobs like this, their lips like that, their men their muscles like this. You know, what's wrong with just being the way you are? Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And we're pushing all this stuff onto our children. Yeah. You know, what are we doing, like? We're, we're just, we're not setting ourselves up for a future at all. Because if we keep going the way we're going, I know for a fact my two kids will throw me into an nursing home the first sign of fucking <laughs> <Forget> <laughs> the you first, buy the, milk. the first sign Work. of anything like I'm yeah. gone Dad you're gone get over here <laughs> you know <laughs> you know it,
3: but, uh, it, it's mad lads right because listen to vouchers of stories right absolutely inspirational stuff and then the fact that he's came around to on the podcast and all I see so many kind of similarities in a way like you was coming from geographically where you was coming from in Cork similar to the way we come from in Dublin how you started the podcast and what you want to do is why we started podcast and what we want to do. Yeah. Your goal for the podcast would seem like the our goal for our podcast, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then the the teams around the episodes are seem like they're ours. We've even had a lot of guests on both as well. Yeah. It's mad when you think about it, isn't it? Who like
2: started first? They did. Well, 20 June 2020, we started. just. Yeah. It's going to say yeah. they copy us, but we are. We were 2020. 2020. 2020. important for us, boys to not become competition. Exactly, James. Because we need to be allies. Like we us.
1: say this all the time. There's no need for competition. Oh. Like it's all well and good. People say healthy competition and this, that and the other, yeah. No need for it in the podcast game. We're trying to inspire another generation to come yeah. up. There's no point in us saying there can only be one, it's yeah. only yeah. us. Yeah. We're
0: trying to inspire the next generation and each other and they all grow together. Yeah. Do you know We're, when there's only one, chance? Yeah. When you're running... In the Olympics and <laughs> it's the hundred meter final. It can only be one then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're living in saying, a, yeah. Is it, it not embarrassing?
3: All Imagine it. me saying to you, Yeah, well, uh, we're about that new one. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're doing a podcast. You're sitting yeah. down and talking. What do you think you're better than someone else? Sitting down do you know what? Know. We're so
0: different, lads, in so many different ways. Do you know, um, everybody's uniqueness is 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 the way they're supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and when you start thinking that or uh, we start thinking that whoever starts thinking that oh they're gonna fucking take this for me or get this or get that, you're losing touch with yourself. Why for this? This is why. Because every one of us have so much to offer mm. people that listen to these in different different ways. And and that's what makes us so so unique in our own way. Ye you, you're comedy you, your you're fucking go gone and Chatty and you're connected emotionally as well. When you have the right guests on, and they need that bit of compassion and a bit of attention and care, you know. Whereas, we can be witty at times, but a lot of the times we can be very serious. Yeah, because it's yeah. some of the subjects we talk
2: about, and and we need to be kind of there for whoever. Right, mm. love, love to see. I'd love to see two women start up something, yeah. or two traveller fellas start up something, or two this mm. from Myros in America, mm. there should be more stuff like what we're doing, do you know what I mean? 100% That's I agree, me and Calvin talk about this so frequently, I wouldn't understand. It's so easy to do,
1: isn't it? It's so simple yeah. to do, yeah. but the, mm. the, it's, I feel like, you can't fake being real, do you get me? Yeah. You just start this up, you start her up with good intentions, mm. like that, you're, you're not starting up to be the best, you're starting up to, Let's say you help, whether it's helping yourself, helping the guest, or helping your area. We yeah, started up with changing absolutely. the perception yeah. of our area. And that was our intention. Just because we dress like this and talk like this doesn't mean what this. Mm. So we started up with that intention. So we good intentions of uh, putting a, a nice, good light on our area. And we thought it was only going to stay in our area. Yeah. So we had that. And I think that's all you need to do when you're starting a podcast. Start it off with good intentions. Yeah. Not to start it off and get the fame, get the money, yeah. be the best.
2: Because people will see you through that. Oh, oh, Quick though, easily. James yeah. I And mean, this is what easily. we
1: can't comprehend Is that We know people That are doing that, yeah mm. And we're like Everybody can see that Yeah, You we, we, can sense yeah, it
2: we get a lot of self-promotion From people looking yeah. to Come on as well mm. We also need to grow The Instagram and stuff like exactly, that Exactly, James Another thing is If you're in it for the money We would have stopped a long time ago Fucking right, <laughs> 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 I know I They like, oh, I get, I get know. that <laughs> fucking tattoo To me back yeah. These days no. Now what
3: I always <laughs> say About podcasts Is it's because They're so easy to do And they're so there's so many podcasts out there, and because it's so easy to do, you get so much diversity, and you'll get something that applies to everybody. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's a podcast out there for somebody. And if you can't find a podcast that applies to you, start your own podcast. Exactly, yeah. Because that, that's what you need.
2: There's yeah.
0: hundreds of thousands of
2: podcasts yeah. around the world, for folks. sake. Yeah. You know what I mean? And do something you enjoy for the love of it. And if success comes in numbers afterwards, isn't that great? Hmm. But we always said we do it if only two or three people listen. If nobody listens, because we love doing it. It's exactly. self, it's, it helps me and Timmy. you know what I mean? It, exactly. We yeah. do
3: it once a week, and people are like, oh, is that not very strange? And so I say, no, this is an outlet. Yeah, well, this is a hobby. You know what yeah. I mean? This isn't a job,
2: it's a hobby. Absolutely. Love yeah.
0: doing the podcast. Like no therapy yeah. session,
3: yeah. isn't yeah.
2: it? Basically, Because, yeah, you know, it's yeah. very demanding as well, to put something out weekly. You know lads what people see and listen is the tip of the iceberg to what goes on into exactly. making a in podcast and if you're only in it for the fame and the money you won't last the pace you have to be passionate about it, it has to mean yeah. something but to you but it's the that. whole
1: thing of James this competition thing well, we can ask better questions than yours yeah. we can have a better com- it, there's no competition no. they're sitting there talking yeah. about something you're passionate about no one needs to be in competition with anybody and especially in a podcast game let's all help each other all grow together what, what's that you always say about the ships
3: Rising tide lifts
1: all ships. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. all we need to do, help each other and I mean, try and
2: inspire the nation and different and bleeding and things. Get this Dublin-Cork collaboration of off. You should come to Cork boys, do a show or something. Yeah. I'd love to get yeah, to Cork at yeah. our show lads, genuinely. Yeah, yeah. The people
3: I do. that say to us, yeah. you just have to come to Cork.
2: have yeah, never, sure. yeah.
3: never, never been. Never in Cork? No need of a joy, no? Go away with that boys. Never in
2: Cork, no? Swear to God, never been Cork. we
3: would have to fix that maybe next year or
0: something. Have you ever been to Kerry? No. Do you
3: know what's funny? Me. Seriously, Any t- anyone who comes to <laughs> Ireland and they always say, Where should I go? I always say, like, Go to Kerry." Curry's never been to the, be
2: really the most beautiful
3: part. I've ever been. is it that
0: yeah. nice? Yeah, um, everyone says that. That's was beautiful. Kerry's stunning. beautiful. stunning. Yeah,
2: like where Cork you know, hope, West like. Cork is stunning as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is it
0: though? Beautiful. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> is, yeah. But Cork is huge beautiful. area. Yeah. Like,
2: if you, you could go from some parts of West Cork, Bearer. And if you go from Bear to Dublin halfway, you're still in Cork, like. Yeah. Yeah. It's the biggest county in Ireland. Oh, it is, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: If you go from one corner of Cork, Castle Thumb Bear to the other, it'll take nearly three and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Would it? Yeah. Would, three, uh, and a half hours. three and a half hours. Yeah. It is the biggest Come down, yeah. Castletown Beer, old as far as Mitchell's Town, it'll take you about three and a half hours.
1: That's nuts,
2: man. What then? the? You'll yeah. be in Dublin faster, Rick. Like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's played mad, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But listen, if you come to Cock, Live us a show we get podcast, uh, and we'd 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 you on the podcast. 100%. We'd love that, boys. I'd say you have a big cock following. Do you get like the analytics from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be, I mean, no, and they're at the live shows and Yeah. And you they're at the live shows
1: because we ask, have we any cultures And instead of just going, yeah, like the rest of them, I go, oh, Cork? Yeah. See, <laughs> so you know straight away, That i say about
3: people from Cork, how do you know? Because the first thing they say, he's like, watching oh, him. I'm from Cork, my name is Timmy. Oh, we're
1: very uh, pros
2: uh, of yeah. where we're from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: But, uh, lads, we know you just need to catch a train. Yeah. Yeah.
2: From, yeah, it
1: was, come was come um, the- it was an absolute yeah. pleasure to have you on. This is something that we wanted to do for a long time, and I'm glad it happened. Yeah. It's a funny and sporting story from yeah. the boat, yes, and it's definitely going to help thousands of people out there, there's no question about it. Before so,
3: I close out, just what I want to touch on, what you were mentioning, lads is like you were talking about you didn't know that you you had these options of not just being an addict or a criminal and i think that's what we need to kind of instill in people where we come from it's like there is other ways out there I'm making money i'm making a living mm-hmm. yeah. and making a happy life for yourself you know what i mean yeah. college isn't for everybody but it should still be an option for you yeah. you should consider it and even if you don't learn anything to me we were saying in the car in the way over you learned more than the degree you got you learned so much more about how to communicate more with people and yeah. It's, it's the networking side mm-hmm. and it's the experiences that you live. Like I've learned more, I've done computer science in college, I think I learned more about life than I did about computer science, you know yeah. what I mean? And about yeah.
0: yourself even. Exactly, yeah, and it know? teaches
3: you, you can do this stuff. Yeah. You have this commitment in front of you and you think, Jesus Christ, how am I going to do four years of this? Mm-hmm. And then when you're doing your last exam, you're like, then four years went like that, yeah. and you know what I mean? And that stuff is invaluable. Mm-hmm. That piece of paper is worth a lot of money, but the stuff that you, lot, you learned outside the, mm-hmm. the lecture hall or the classroom, it's priceless. Like. Yeah, absolutely, so,
0: absolutely. And you know what the other side of it is too? The years in college are very, they're, they're, they're years of your life where you're, you could go anywhere. Mm. You know? mm. so it's good that you're inside in that environment as well and you're learning and you're also finding out what you can do and what you can't do. And that was one of the biggest things for me being in college. I actually started getting confidence in myself, stuff that I never had because I was starting to exceed my limits. The limits that I had, taught had itself, inside yeah. myself, and I was exceeding them. And what happened? I started getting confident. You know, saying, "Do you know what? I actually can do it." And this chapter's changing my belief systems, and that—that that was a big deal for me. And if I'd never went to college, I would never have got
3: found that. that mm. so that's the thing. That's it's again, toward level isn't the be all <laughs> and end all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. educate yourself honestly because. Mm help you understand the world help you understand how people how people operate you know even yeah. then when you switch on the news you kind of understand what's happening then you can see why things are developing the way they are and yeah. processes but and stuff it, everything
2: it, I think I think for uh, for, for for podcasts for, for me anyway, and Timmy it's like education has given us a vocabulary to communicate our experiences so we're not just saying oh it is shitty childhood I can explain to you the parts of the childhood that were difficult and how that may have contributed to my outcomes later mm. in life I didn't have that vocabulary before I went to college, you know what I mean? I didn't understand my how my past experiences maybe connected to my present circumstances, yeah. you know. And uh, having the words to be able to say like, um, I'm emotionally dysregulated, so I get stressed and then I want to use it was like I'm fucking pissed off, you know. That was yeah. my or I'm angry, you know. But it's just to be able to understand your your life and be able to put words on it helps us to communicate. So that's what I think uh, college gave me as much as anything else. Yeah. And we really? just need
3: to tell people where we come from. It's all doom and gloom. Yeah. Give them a better belief. And a bit of hope, yeah, and I think there's nothing more dangerous out there than a working class person with a mm. bit of drive and a belief system, yeah, absolutely. Because they'll get yeah. to where they need to go, mm.
2: absolutely. And
3: uh, right, we wrap this up, lads. Your podcast is available
2: everywhere yeah. YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast the usual haunts, and have yeah. his hat to plug, boys. Yeah, well, when does this go out this post will be on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, we're flogging a men's wellness workshop. So there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment around men. And uh, I know Jordan Peterson saw out in Dublin recently. There's a lot of... that Men are looking for a bit of direction right around masculinity some of the stuff we spoke about you know relationships assertiveness confidence self-esteem and we've touched on all those things down through the podcast but this is an opportunity for people to come to myself and timmy for two or three hours and you know ask us questions to figure out like what we're doing so we can help them in all these areas it's only a nominal fee 20 euros if you can't afford it give us a shout we might be able to sponsor you but it's more about um helping helping men And uh, so that's available on the website, or you can contact us on social media if you want to have a question about that. It's just about
0: maybe giving people a bit of structure in their lives, you know, some of the stuff that helped me, some of the stuff that helped James in his recovery or helped me through my mental health, meditation, creating healthy routines with nutrition, you know, timeline, structure with my day, you know, all these different things that I didn't have before, it's just about helping men around those areas and maybe giving them an opportunity to open up a space where they can f- feel that it's okay to open up and be vulnerable and they don't have to be that masculine kind of image anymore yeah. like men men, it's it's time for men to start do you know looking after themselves going deep within themselves be well vulnerable saying, isn't it is boys That's who I am it's okay mm-hmm. you know. brilliant that. Right, right, we'll wrap yeah. this one up. thanks yeah. lads thanks for
3: the invitation yeah. well my boys, for right. on, boys. Take us out there Chris Bell. what, you for?
0: what you back
1: in it? just a more up can I knocker